If this is your first time here today, man, we are so grateful uh, that you've come uh, to um, our church this morning. And of course, we're super uh, thrilled um, that we're looking at this passage in the Gospel of Matthew. And just as we begin, I thought about um, this passage a couple of weeks ago. I was in New York City with a couple of pastors having an incredible time learning, actually, from, um, from a church planner who started several churches up in New York City. And he showed the cohort of pastors uh, the following picture that I want you to take a look at. Now that is a famous work of art by Rembrandt. And I want you to take a close look at that. It's called Christ in the Storm. Now Jesus, um, he is hanging out in the boat. And if you notice the picture, everybody's responding to the storm in a different way. Some people are overwhelmed. They're looking at the waves and the wind. Other people are in despair, and they're staring at the ocean and at the seas. And some are trying to take control of the situation. Look at them hanging on for their dear life on the boat, while others are looking at Christ. But if you notice... Kind of around the center point of the painting, uh, there's another person. Now, Rembrandt, he was well known for sometimes painting himself into his paintings. And so this is he wearing this blue robe. And he's looking back at the audience. And he's confronting us with a question as if though he is asking, who are you? When the storms of life crash against you. How will you respond to the challenges and anxieties of this life? We live right now in a cultural moment where um, it's perhaps the most anxious, anxious time in America. According to psychology today, this came out just a couple of weeks ago, the average high school kid now has the same level of anxiety as a psychiatric patient in the early 1950s. Prescription medication for antidepressants and anti-anxiety medication has skyrocketed. If you think about it, the, what are the causes of anxiety? You think just about the regular um, decisions that we make in everyday life. You think about finding a place to live, developing relationships with others. Um, coping with stress and sickness, parenting, working on friendship, on our marriage, on our relationships. And you add the development of screens and social media. You add that kind of technology in this cultural moment. And what you have is this accelerant of anxiety. So how are we supposed to follow Jesus in the midst of all of this stress and hurry? What does it look like to be followers of Christ in this cultural moment. So here's what I want to do. I, as we look at this particular text, I want to ask you three clarifying questions that emerge from these words. And the way that we respond to each of those questions can radically transform our hearts and our relationship with God. You see, part of the question that is going to be revealed in this text is, where are you in relation to Jesus? Perhaps you're here and you're curious about who he is. Maybe you've been following Jesus for some time, but you find yourself cold and apart from him. 
maybe there's never been a better time in your life. And your relationship with God is just so close that this is just going to encourage you. Wherever you are today, I want you to be confronted in the best of ways by this text. Look, here's the first question. Have you counted the cost? Have you counted the cost of following Jesus? Look at how he begins in verse 18. If you have a Bible, by the way, you can open it up to Matthew chapter 8. We've been going through the Gospel of Matthew for several months now. Matthew chapter 8, listen, listen to what Matthew writes. When Jesus saw a large crowd around him, he gave the order to go to the other side of the sea. A scribe approached him and said, teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. In verse 20, Jesus says, foxes of dens and birds of the sky have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. What's going on here? Well, the scribes were the scholars and the intellectual learned men of their day. They made the systematic study of the law of Moses their profession. They're experts on those kinds of writings in the Hebrew scriptures. If you wanted to know what the law meant and how it applied to everyday life, you would go to a scribe. And scribes were greatly respected uh, by the people in their uh, town. They sought the acclaim and the honor of the Jews. They liked going around in the robes of nobility. They enjoyed being called rabbi, teacher. They appreciated their, you know, their position as authorities, teachers, and leaders. In many ways, they basked in the glory of being a scribe. So in this situation, it seems like an incredible opportunity for the church. This scribe is coming up to Jesus and he says, dude, I'm going to follow you wherever you go. I mean, these were the influencers of the day. Got the blue check mark and everything. Reputation and status. Haven't you ever wondered, oh my God, man, wouldn't it be so cool if such and such person came to know Jesus and then everything else would change? This is what's happening around here. And so Jesus responds to him. Rather than coddling him, rather than managing his image, rather than, than doing that, he challenges the scribe. He's telling him, listen, have you counted the cost? Have you counted the cost of following me? Because guess what? I'm an itinerant preacher right now, and I don't have a home. I've been homeless. You've got a lot to lose. You've got to be willing to part with your possessions in order to follow me. And it teaches us a very powerful lesson because if Jesus was looking for somebody with great clout and influence, this was a great chance. And so we got to get one thing clear. Even though Jesus loves everybody, right, from the person who is an outcast and in the margins to those who may have a lot of public acclaim, he doesn't need a famous person to spread the gospel. Christianity was forged in the margins. Jesus was born in a stable. When he arrives, he recruits 12 unknown men to change the world upside down. It's not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. That's how things change. You see, Jesus cared. He cared about preaching to a crowd. He cared about preaching to the multitude because he loved them. But listen to me. He's not interested in gathering a fickle crowd. He's interested in discipling faithful, committed people. So part of what happens here as you 
Meditate on that question. Have you counted the cost? It reveals to us whether or not we today are in the crowd or we're committed. Where are you? Are you in the crowd? Do you like being around Jesus? Around what he is doing? Or are you committed to him? Have you counted the cost? What does that mean, Carlos? What do you mean? Are you willing to do whatever he asks of you? This is the cost of following Jesus. You don't have to pay for your sin. Jesus already did that on the cross. Amen? But you do have to take up your cross and carry it. This is part of the invitation of what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. I mean, think about this second example. And I think this one hits home, especially in Miami, especially if you're Hispanic or you have a very tight family culture. Listen to what Jesus says. Lord, verse 21. Another one of his disciples said, first, let me go bury my father. Sounds reasonable, right? But Jesus told them, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Yo, in Miami, you don't mess with the concept of family, Jesus. <laughs> What's going on here? When you first read the story, it's kind of shocking, isn't it? I mean, why, why, would you, why would your son, I mean, what kind of son would you have to be in order to not attend your father's funeral? Why would Jesus make such a request in a society that treasured the family? And what happens is the more that you study this passage, here's what you come to realize. I, I love what this um, um, scholar writes. That saying, let me go bury my father, uh, was an idiom, was an idiom in ancient culture. So if the father had just died, here's what would really happen. The son wouldn't be even in the roadside with Jesus. He would be keeping watch in a vigil. Um, preparing for the funeral. What this idiom of first let me go bury my father is essentially this brother is saying, hey, let me first go take care of family business and then I'm going to come to follow you. So this was an idiom to fulfill a person's family obligations. And so what the person is saying here, uh, he wants to follow Jesus and if the first man was too like presumptuous, and too quick to want to follow Jesus without counting the cost. This second person was actually too patient, too passive. And Jesus essentially is saying here, Jesus is saying, listen, you cannot postpone your discipleship to me. He would have done it most likely for years and not days. In other words, this is when we say sometimes, Jesus, I'm going to follow you when? I'm going to follow you when. Have you ever said that to Jesus? <laughs> I have. I remember in college. I'm going to follow you when I finish my degree. School's really heavy right now. I'm going to follow you after I wrap up this TV series. It's just too good right now, man. All right. I just need a couple more hours and maybe I'll have a quiet time tomorrow, like five minutes. You know, I'll put, turn on something. I'm going to follow you when I get married, when I have kids. Ooh, we got to take the kids to church, man. It's really important. When I get the right job, when I get settled in my new home, when I find the perfect church, God, then I'm going to really do this important thing. But here's the thing. Jesus invites him and invites you to follow him now. Have you counted 
the cost. Listen, family matters to Jesus. This is not him erasing the fifth commandment, honor your mother and your father. What he's doing is he's establishing the priority. Outside of anything else, what matters most is that you seek first the kingdom of God. You prioritize everything. And like that passage says, everything else will be added on to you. But this is a tough word, isn't it? That's why on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this in Matthew 7. He says, how narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life and few find it. Have you counted the cost? Are you willing to do whatever he asks of you? And some of you may wonder, dude, why would Jesus be this intense? I mean, why would he demand everything? Like even in the timing. Are you serious, God? Let me process for a little bit. Let me think about this. It seems like, you know, Christianity, Jesus, I don't know, this doesn't sound like a lot of fun. It doesn't sound like it's about joy. But if you read the scriptures from cover to cover, then you realize Jesus came here to give you an abundant life, man. It's about enjoying him, delighting him as he invites you into following him in the kingdom. I love this quote by a German theologian, Helmut, I can't pronounce his last name. This is... Um, this is what he writes, and it's pretty cool, though. I think it's Thielicky, but um, I may be wrong. Uh, if you speak German, uh, please see me after service. Okay, so um, the man who wants only a bit of God always finds God to be only a break, an impediment, a pain. But he who wants God holy learns that he is the source of power, that he gives a man freedom and verse. That following him is the most joyful thing in the world because he frees a man from all the things that tempt and torment the half-hearted. Jesus is after your whole heart, not a half-heart. He's after your joy. I think part of the reason why also we have to count the cost of discipleship is because this invitation into following Jesus is an invitation actually into spiritual warfare. I don't think, right, especially in our cultural moment, that the kind of Christianity that's going to survive is a half-hearted Christianity. It reminds me of Demas in the Bible. Um, this is one of the saddest verses in, in I think, all of the scriptures. Uh, everybody thinks that Demas is a follower of Jesus. He's a leader. He's been with Paul in several trips. Um, Paul uh, greets the church in Colossae. In the, in the letter to the Colossians, and he says, hey, both Luke and Demas, they send you greetings. Paul honors Demas in another letter in the New Testament, Philemon, saying that he was a fellow co-worker in the ministry. This dude was in ministry, but toward the end of Paul's life, here's what he writes in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 9 and 10. He's writing to Timothy, and he says, make every effort to come to me soon, because Demas has deserted me since he loved this present world and he's gone to Thessalonica hmm. sometimes after years of following Jesus trials and temptations will wear you down to such a point that you will be tempted to turn to the world to give you comfort sometimes we lose our wonder 
and we embrace cynicism. Demas, it says in this text, loved the spirit of this age. And that takes a different shape for all of us. Maybe for some of us that is comfort, that could be power, that could be wealth, that could be relationships. A New Testament scholar writes this, perhaps Demas never truly counted the cost. It may be he did not understand that when we come to Christ, we will face troubles because we will always collide with the world. Have you counted the cost? What may be stopping some of you from following Jesus today is that your heart is split between loving the spirit of the age and loving Jesus. Because look at what happens when you follow Jesus, right? Have you counted the cost? That's the first question. Are you willing to do whatever he asks of you? Look at this in verse 23. As he, Jesus gets into the boat, his disciples followed him. Okay, so these are the, the people who actually make that decision. We're going to follow you with our whole heart. And suddenly a violent storm arose in the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But Jesus kept sleeping. So the disciples came and woke him up and saying, Lord, save us. We're going to die. And he said to them, why are you afraid, you of little faith? And then he got up and rebuked the winds in the sea. And there was a great calm. If the first question was, have you counted the cost? Here's a second question for you today. What do you fear? What do you fear? Unfortunately, I've had a terrible experience of enduring a storm in the ocean. Um, aboard a small wooden boat that Venezuelans like to call a peñero. Okay, I have a picture of that. That's a peñero right there. Um, I remember it like it was yesterday. I was in Venezuela. I was about 11, 12 years old. My parents went off the coast uh, with some church friends. Uh, we were going to go snorkel at some of the islands around Venezuela, some of the keys. And after this beautiful day of snorkeling and enjoying the beach, as the sun was coming down, uh, we realized that there was a storm brewing. The clouds were thickening. The young captain said, hey, we have to get into the boat. We have to go back to the shore. And so uh, all of the parents gathered their kids and about 12 of us, I want you to think, 12 to 14 of us are like in one little boat. Now, this was a young captain, and he didn't really know a lot about what he was doing. And so he actually led us toward the middle of the ocean where the waves were huge. It started raining. Suddenly, this violent storm came upon us. I was 11 years old. I could see the fathers in the back yelling at this captain. And these are Christian men saying things that, well, anyways, and they're yelling at him. And you got like six kids in here. And this is a church group. And I, I don't think I'd ever, at that point in my life, I had never been so afraid. I'm like, dude, we are, we may die today. We're going up and down, up. I mean, it's like 20 foot waves. I kid you not. In the middle of all of that, because it was a church group, some mom starts saying, with God in my boat, I smile in the storm. I smile in the storm. I smile. I mean, it's like a horror movie, okay? <laughs> That's exactly what's going on. I'm like, for sure we're going to die, you know? In the midst of all of this, we get back to the shore. 
And I remember a couple of things. Number one, I was really scared because we were just a couple of inches every time the boat would come down on the waves from the ocean. And the second thing I remember is I could not control anything. I wasn't in control. I wasn't in control. I didn't have the power to stop by what's taking place. And in this story, the disciples feel absolutely out of control. I want you to think about this. It was Jesus who told them to go into the other side. It was Jesus who led them into the storm. What do you do with that? That's what happens in the text. Jesus gets inside the boat and they start following him into this violent storm. Sometimes we're going to follow Jesus into difficult circumstances. How does that make you feel? That's why it's important that we ask the question, have you counted the cost? And then, of course, what do you fear? What do you fear? Fifteen days before the Nazis came to power, Bonhoeffer, he preached the sermon and he said, when Christ is in the boat, a storm always comes up. You have to remember that many of these men were trained fishermen. They were skillful. They had faced difficult storms uh, before. This was their profession. Jesus was a carpenter. Fishing was their trade. And it, it makes you realize it doesn't matter how talented, how successful, how experienced you may be in a particular profession or in life. The storms of this world have a way of unmasking the fantasy of control. They unmask it. We're not in control. We think we're in control until nature reminds us of the sheer force of how small we are. We think we're in control because we have an amazing job today, but then something happens in the economy that we're not in control of. And what happens? We thought we were in control in 2020. And a small microscopic virus turns the world upside down. We're not in control. And so when the fantasy of control reveals, right, like, like when that fantasy fails, our real fears are revealed. So a question for us today is what do you fear? What are you most afraid of losing? When you think about following Jesus, do you fear rejection? Do you fear failure? Do you feel you make the wrong choice? Do you fear death? Do you fear missing out? What is your fear? Why are you afraid, Jesus says in this text? You see, fear undermines our capacity to trust Jesus completely. Even though the waves felt like they were about to split the boat in two, the, the thing is Jesus was still sleeping. You ever feel like that? Things are happening in your life and you're like, yo, Jesus, where are you? Seems like you are sleeping. The disciples say, Jesus, save us, we're going to die. And when he wakes up, instead of speaking to the waves and the wind first, he actually speaks to the disciples. <laughs> He's like, what's happening, you know? Why are you afraid? He deals first with their wavering faith. Spurgeon is a famous preacher. Man, I'm giving you so many quotes today, man, I'm sorry. You got to stay tapped in. Get your cafecito, bro, okay, let's go. Spurgeon says this, he spoke to the men first because they were the most difficult to deal with. 
and then he rebuked the sea. Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? That word afraid um, is a different word uh, in the Greek language. It deals more with cowardice. In some ways, like, why are you being cowards? It's normal to be afraid in the midst of a storm. But in this case, he's rebuking them. For, like, there's an excessive fear here. Why are you forgetting that I'm on the boat with you? Now, Jesus still responds. He still acts, even though they had weak faith. He doesn't say, I better see some strong faith, otherwise I'm not moving. I'm going back to bed. He doesn't say that. He still responds even to a faith that is weak. And that should be encouraging for some of us who sometimes feel like, man, I did not trust Jesus enough, and therefore he's not going to come through. No, Jesus still responds. He responds to their requests. And he stops the storm. So what do we learn here? What do we fear? Well, we learn that Jesus wants to form us into fearless Christians. Into people who trust in God in the midst of difficult circumstances. And I say this again. I think in our cultural moment, it's going to be increasingly difficult to be a Christian. I think we're going to face more pressure. Right? If COVID was difficult, I think it was preparation for some of us. We're moving into an environment, into a context where it's going to be more difficult to hold Christian convictions than ever before. The early church faced this constantly. Thank God we have a history. This is not a five-year-old faith, amen? We have over 2,000, right? 5,000 years of history between the Old and New Testament. We have countless of stories of martyrs who exercised their faith with extraordinary courage. Some of us today, that's what we need to hear today. Like, listen, God is a God of power, and he's giving you courage today. If some of you have been on the sidelines because you've been afraid of whatever's going on in your life, Jesus is calling, oh, man, let's step out. Trust in me. Let my perfect love drive out your fear. Reminds me of the story of Perpetua, okay? Do you guys ever, have you ever heard of Perpetua? You know who she is? Baby names. Okay, Perpetua was 22 years old. <laughs> hey, listen, she was married and she was uh, the mother of an infant boy whom she nursed uh, in her jail cell. It's a pretty incredible story of the early church. Uh, she was in prison for being a Christian in Rome. All she had to do in order to get out of prison was to recant her belief in Jesus and offer a simple sacrifice to Caesar. If you would just call Caesar Lord, then it's all done. Her father begged her to do this, but she refused time and time again. And finally, as she was led out into the Roman Colosseum to be killed by beast or gladiator, she was singing hymns to Jesus. Can you imagine that kind of courage in the middle of the storm to be able to Worship God for who he is. 22 years old. You're not too young to do things for Christ. To change the world by the power of his spirit. Her last words, by the way, spoken to her brother, were these. Stand in the faith. Stand in the faith. What do you fear? 
What do you fear? Whatever that is, whatever that fear is, it'll inevitably come before you and following Jesus. Have you counted the cost? What do you fear? And finally, what kind of man is Jesus? What kind of man is he? The answer to that question changes everything for you. Look at Matthew chapter 8, verse 27. The man were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the sea obey him. How you answer that question for yourself today will determine your destiny. The entire story is coming to this climactic conclusion here where the disciples exemplify and show that they actually don't know who Jesus is. They wanted to follow him. They saw him perform some miracles, but he just spoke to creation and to the sea, and they obeyed. And so they're amazed at both his power and his authority over creation. What kind of man is this? That's the ultimate question for the human heart. What kind of man is Jesus to you? Is he a good moral teacher who gives you some advice about how to live your life? Who is Jesus to you? Is he a, a prophet that gives us insight into the future of humanity? Who is Jesus to you? Is he just a historical figure that we must learn from or build upon? Who is Jesus to you or isn't? Is he the Lord of your life? That is the question of this text. Can you trust in Jesus completely. What kind of man is this? Jesus is the savior of mankind. This text is not so much about how Jesus delivers you from the storms of life. He can do that. He can do that. But he didn't do that for Perpetua. He gave her courage. He got her through the situation. Have you counted the cost? It could be a challenge to follow Jesus. What do you fear? But then most importantly, what kind of man is Jesus to you? Is he a teacher? Is he a prophet? Or is he the Lord? You see, what Jesus did for you and for me is he actually counted the cost. And he chose to pay it. He saw us. In our separation from God. He saw us in our sin. He saw us apart from him. And he chose to come. And to die a death on a cross. And to pay the ultimate price. So that he would shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sin. And in addition to that. To demonstrate his power. Over death. Over creation. Over your future. Over your destiny. He rose on the third day. And he says, listen, I am the door. I can give you everlasting life. I can give you abundant life. If you would just come to me, I'll give you rest. So where are you today in relation to Jesus? Have you counted the cost? Are you willing to do whatever he asks of you? What do you fear? What are some of the disappointments that you think if you'll face, you won't ever be able to follow him through? And 
then finally, what kind of family system?